So on Wednesday, uh, my children received a book of riddles. They've rec- they received it as a gift, and they have been going about the house with that book, asking riddles nonstop since then. And honestly, it's been a delight, truly. Uh, I am the kind of person that enjoys riddles. I like the brain teasers. I like trying to figure it out. I like, you know, it always makes you feel good when, you, when there's a riddle and you puzzle on it for a little bit, and ah, you, it clicks and you figure it out, and like, aha, I guess I got that one. There have been many good ones, classic ones, interesting ones, but they're all, all fun. Some of my favorite riddles are the classic misdirection riddles. Uh, There's a classic one that I learned as a child that is also within that book. As I was going to St. Ives, I met a man with seven wives. Every wife had seven sacks, every sack had seven cats, every cat had seven kits. Kits, cats, sacks, and wives, how many were going to St. Ives? And you might be tempted to start trying to puzzle. Okay, just start doing the math, like how many? And you might be tempted to start debating whether or not the, the, the cats and the kittens, do they count? Should, should I be counting them in this equation when the answer is actually a very simple one? One. As I was going to St. Ives, I met a man. Riddles are great. They, they, they teach us to be observant. They teach us to think about things in unique and creative ways. And it's been fun to work through several of those riddles with my children. I believe it was Friday evening when we were going through all of these riddles, and I said, hey, do you know that Jesus once asked the Pharisees a riddle? So we opened up the Scriptures, and we saw this riddle that was asked by Jesus to the Pharisees. The Pharisees had been asking Jesus lots of questions. They'd been trying to trap Him into His words, trying to discredit Him with their questions. Maybe He would answer in a way that the people wouldn't like, or maybe He would say something that the government would really have a problem with, and they would come in and take care of the problem for them, but Jesus wasn't taking the bait. Well, finally, at the end of all that, Jesus, I think He's had enough of their questions, and so He turns the tables on them and says, okay, now let me ask you a question, and here's a riddle for you. And so we find in Matthew chapter 22, verse 41, now while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question, saying, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, He's the son of David. And he said to them, How is it then that David in the Spirit calls him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. Jesus asked them this riddle, and they couldn't figure it out. They could not solve the riddle. They had no answer, and I asked Yakar, and, and she actually knew the answer. Well, he's, he can be David's son because, of course, he is a descendant of David, right? He is in the lineage of David. We have the genealogies of Jesus Christ that bear that out, that that traces it back to David himself. And yet, he is David's Lord because he is God in human flesh. God took on humanity and entered into the world. And so that we have this concept of of the Messiah being both divine on the one hand and yet human on the other, yet both are present even in one person. And we see this truth hinted at with the Old Testament. And Jesus uses this as an opportunity to challenge the Pharisees because they had completely missed this in the Old Testament. They could not make sense of this riddle because they they were looking for a different kind of Messiah than what the Old Testament revealed. Well, last week we talked about Jesus being a truly human and everything that that means for us, the, the true humanity of Christ. Yes, He truly is David's Son. Today, we're going to consider the divinity of Christ. He is Lord. He is Yahweh. He is divine. And I'd like to begin by taking us all the way back to the Old Testament, to one of, if not the, most important text in all of the entire Old Testament. 
We're going back to Exodus chapter 34. Just want to set the context for us a little bit as we, as we begin to examine a text in chapter 34. The story of the book of Exodus, of course, is the story of how God led the people of Israel up out of Egypt and into the promised land, right? There's, there's that story. That's, that's where the word Exodus comes, comes from. It's a departure. It's an exiting from Egypt. He brings them out of there. And the, and the Lord establishes His covenant with them. The Lord led the people to Mount Sinai, and, and He took Moses up on the mountain, and He revealed His law and His covenant to Moses. And then we have in chapter 24, the people listening to Moses, and we have this, this is chapter four, 24, verse 7. Moses took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people, and they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient. Moses then returns to the mountain where he receives more instruction from the Lord. And so if you were to look from chapters 25 through 31, more laws are given, more instruction is given from the Lord to the people of Israel about how they are to engage and how they are to live their lives. And it's during that time when Moses is up on the mountain that problems are brewing in the camp of the Israelites. They're at the bottom of the mountain and that's where the the golden calf episode unfolds. We're familiar with that story from Exodus chapter 32. They had just ratified the covenants. And as Moses is up on the mountain, they are already straying into idolatry. The Lord is angry with the people for so quickly abandoning their commitment to the covenant they had just made, but Moses intercedes for the people that Yahweh might stay his hand, and the Lord relents. But then as Moses comes down the mountain, he breaks the tablets as he sees and beholds. He was up on the mountain and God was angry. He says, Lord, don't destroy them. And then he comes down the mountain and he sees what God had seen. And in his anger, he breaks the tablets. And then, of course, the consequences unfold from there. The golden calf is destroyed. The people have to drink the water that is polluted with the powder of the remains of the golden calf. And there's judgment that is carried out. Well, in the midst of all of that, uh, the Lord speaks and says, Okay, you know what? I, 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 I promised that I would not destroy you. I will bring you into the promised land. But the Lord says that He will no longer be the one to lead them personally, but rather will send an angel to lead them. So we see 30, chapter 33, verse 3, He says, Go to a land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way for you are a stiff-necked people. Different translations render that an obstinate people. It's a, it's a bit of an idiom where the Lord's trying to direct their way and He's trying to, trying to pull them, but they're resisting. They're, they're pulling back. They're stiff-necked, like, like trying to pull an animal, and the animal is just resisting to what the Lord is doing. He says, you are a stiff-necked people, so I will not go with you. It's a heartbreaking moment. An absolutely heartbreaking moment. And the people are understandably distraught. It says, when the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned and no one put on his ornaments. They, they would have different things that they would put on and they know they did not put any of that on. They were distraught. And what follows from this episode might be described as one of the most audacious requests that a human being has ever made to the Lord. Moses pleads with the Lord that, that he would be with them as they enter the land. He says, Lord, I, I, your presence, it has to go with us. We, we can't go alone. If, if you will not lead us up, we don't want to go at all. You have to be with us, Lord. That's what he says in chapter 33, verse 15. If your presence will not go with me, do not send us up from here. We have no interest in being your people if you will not be the one to guide us. But more than that, 
Moses wants some kind of, of de, a, a tangible demonstration, something, something that he can see, something that, so that he knows that the Lord will not forsake them and that he is with his people. And so Moses pleads with the Lord. He cries out to him, Lord, please show me your glory. That has to be the most audacious request a human being can make of the Lord. Show me your glory. Moses has asked to see the glory of Yahweh, the creator of all things. And remarkably, Yahweh says, okay, yes. Now, the full glory will not be revealed. A mere mortal human being cannot see the full glory of the Lord and live. So God says, I, I will not show you my face. No one can see my face and live. But Moses will get to see a glimpse of the glory of the Lord. And as chapter 34 begins, Yahweh calls Moses back up onto the mountain. And then we have that episode where he, he puts him into the cleft of the rock and he covers him with his hand. And it is here that the Lord reveals His glory to Moses and makes the proclamation of His nature in Exodus 34, 6 through 7. We're going to read that text in a moment. I just want to note a few reasons why the background leading up to this moment is significant and important, right as we're about to read this text. First, it establishes the covenantal context of God's revelation to Moses. What God is about to do for Moses is in the context of God ratifying the Mosaic covenant with the people, that they would be His people and He would be their God, and that He would bring them into the land to establish them and that they would obey Him. Second, it establishes the, the character context of the people of Israel, Though they had enthusiastically agreed to the covenant at first, everything that the Lord says, we will do, we will be obedient, we'll do it. They had quickly and they will consistently fall into patterns of disobedience and rebellion such that the Lord calls them obstinate or stiff-necked. And third, this context helps us establish the relational context between Moses and the Lord as Moses intercedes for the people, his intercessory work between the people and the Lord as he sought the assurance that the Lord would indeed be with them and not forsake them. And as we were, if we look ahead later on into chapter 34, we would see that there's going to be a, a renewal. God is going to renew the covenant with the people. And so thus we have this self-revelation that we're about to see the self-revelation of God to Moses, this is a crucial hinge point in the narrative. This is a crucial moment in between the, the establishment of the covenant and the people falling away and forsaking the covenant so quickly, and then the renewal of the covenant that's about to come. This is what stands in the gap. This is what's in between. The grandest statement of who God is contained in the Old Testament. So let's read our text. Exodus 34, I hope you've turned there by now. Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. This is the Lord. This is who God is. 
these two verses succinctly declare the character and the nature of God. It's worth noting that up until this point, Yahweh's self-descriptions of Himself, they've been very limited. As you go through Genesis and the early portions of the book of Exodus, we're not really left with a whole lot by way of Yahweh's self-revelation in terms of describing who He is. We're really left with other characters. We're left with seeing what God does and making inferences from that, and then other characters throughout the narrative responding to the Lord and declaring who God is. So really, prior to this moment, the most important revelation of who God is is actually found earlier in this book in chapter 3, where the Lord declared that His name is, I am who I am. Are familiar with that? I am who I am, which most scholars believe to, that they take it to mean something along the lines of, I am the one who is, or I am the self-existent one, or I will be who I will be, or even I am the one who is there. And this is the covenant nature of God. He is the self-existent one. He is the God who is there, the God who is present, the God who is there for Moses and the people. And it is through that text in Exodus chapter 3 and then this text here in Exodus 34 that we have the, the most complete picture of what God is like in His character, His nature, about who He is. And here Yahweh establishes how He will interact with and how He will relate to His people. And so the weight of this interaction, the weight of this self-revelation, this self-declaration, the weight of it cannot be overstated. Well, how does the Lord describe Himself? Well, first we noticed that, G, that, uh, that He uses His name twice in succession. The Lord. The Lord God. I don't know if you notice the all caps there in your Bible. If you look uh, in your Bible at that verse where it says Lord and it's capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, all caps. You might notice that. That's, that's something unique that not every time the word Lord shows up throughout all the Scriptures is it all caps. Well, here it is. Well, that indicates that the underlying Hebrew is the name Yahweh. It is the Lord's name. You know, there are different Hebrew words that refer to God. We think of Elohim, that is the word God, it's translated as God. There's the word Adonai, which is translated as Lord. That's often a title for, for God's position. But Yahweh, Yahweh is His name. And the repetition of His name is likely a reminder the Lord placing an emphasis upon His own name. He focuses the attention on the one who is speaking. There's one author who wrote this about this. He says he was emphasizing the reality of Yahweh present in His very being, linking this proof to Moses to the earlier proof of present narratives that are found in Exodus 3 and providing another anchor line for the list of five descriptive phrases to follow. Phrases that, divine, that define how Yahweh, the one who always is, really is. Right? This is our God. This is who He is. So, so we have within the context of, of covenant renewal, Moses' request to see the, the tangible presence of the Lord. Yahweh begins with this repetition of His name as if to say, It really is me, and I really am here with you now. And this is what I am really like. From there, these descriptions follow. He is merciful. Some translations say compassionate. The Hebrew word speaks uh, pertaining to showing favor and, and not punishment that is often deserved, implying a forgiving relationship. word speaks of a, a gut-level emotional reaction of a sympathy or a tender-hearted mercy and is related to the Hebrew word that speaks of the guts, the womb, our, what we feel within us. It's somewhat anthropomorphic. It's, you know, applying these, 
trying to understand it in a human way, the way God relates to His people. But He is merciful. He's compassionate. He is tender. There's a forgiving relationship there. He's also gracious. The word that is used for gracious there it is used 13 other times throughout the Old Testament, and in every single context is used of the Lord in Him alone. No one else is described as gracious as the Lord is here. And in 12 of those 13 occurrences, by the way, it's, it's paired with that word for mercy. He's merciful and compassionate. He is, he is merciful and gracious. These two things come together in pairs. The mercy of the Lord is a truly wonderful thing. I was recently in a, in a situation where I had to ask forgiveness for a sin that I had committed. And that individual was under no obligation to respond to me in a gracious way, and yet I received mercy and grace. If he had been angry with me, I certainly would have deserved that response, but I received mercy. I received grace. As I think about that, if it would have been right for that human individual in that moment to respond with, with anger towards my sin, imagine the wrath that I should receive from Almighty God. The wrath that should come from the Lord. And yet, I receive mercy from Him as well. And I know that that's true because I'm standing before you today. Right? God hasn't struck me down yet that every single day, every breath that I breathe is God's mercy on my life. He should strike all of us down because of our sin, and yet God is merciful and gracious. Notice how the text goes on. He says He is merciful, He is gracious, next it says He is slow to anger. I had to get a chuckle out of this phrase because it's a Hebrew idiom that literally means He is long of nose. It's like, okay, that's, that's a unique phrase. We don't, we don't talk like that, right? It's an idiom that refers to you know, having, it's like, someone, it's like the opposite of someone says, oh, that person really has a short fuse, right? That means they're quick-tempered, right? And so if someone had a short nose, that means they are short, they are quick-tempered in the same way. And so to be long of nose, this isn't Pinocchio telling lies, right? No, it's a Hebrew idiom that speaks of patience, forbearance. He is not hot-tempered. He is not easily angered. It's the opposite of that. It implies that Yahweh's immediate response to an affront is forbearance rather than retaliation, as one commentator put it. He is patient, slow to anger. I think this descriptor is particularly important in the context of covenant renewal. Of course, this is a context where the Lord was angry with the people, so angry as to destroy the people, and Moses interceded for them. And it's important to note that, that this is not because God is just easily set off. He's just a ticking time bomb waiting to explode. No, that's not the case. Though they have invoked His wrath incessantly, and yet because of His forbearance, He is willing to renew the covenant with His people. Think of the implications of that for your own life. Think of the areas of your life where you are often slow to obey, slow to understand, slow to learn what God wants you to learn and wants to teach you. And yet, despite our slowness, God is slow to anger. He's patient. Can you imagine what it would look like if God displayed the level of patience that we can display when maybe we're waiting for food at a restaurant that's taking too long or we're driving on the road and there's, there's other drivers that are not being good drivers around us, right? And our wrath can be easily kindled about these things. Oh, the injustice here! How dare they! What if God were to treat us in that? But that's not how He is. Praise God, that's not what our Lord is like. He is slow to anger. He is compassionate. He is merciful towards us. 
the next descriptor is that he is abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Or some translations render it, he is abounding in loving kindness and truth, followed by he keeps steadfast love for thousands. So God is described as abounding in something. He overflows in it. He has a lot of it. God isn't stingy with His steadfast love. He abounds in it. You know, that, that word uh, loving kindness or steadfast love, it's used 400 and, or, sorry, 245 times within the Old Testament in a variety of different contexts, but most often it carries the concept of a loyal love or a disposition of kindness towards someone. God's default disposition is kindness to His people. It speaks of His covenant loyalty to them. It's not that God is begrudgingly keeping His covenant because, well, I guess I promised and I guess I got to keep my promises. No. He abounds in steadfast love. He abounds in this loving kindness. He delights to show His loyal love to His people. He has this disposition towards His people of kindness. He is rich in loving kindness. He abounds. In loving kindness, and he abounds in faithfulness. And if you have the NASB, it says truth. He abounds in faithfulness. He abounds in truth. This communicates the trustworthiness of the Lord. He is faithful. He is truthful. He is dependable. He is sure. You can count on him. You know, we used to work with with a couple of guys that you know. I'm sure we've all interacted with these individuals at different points. You never knew if they were actually going to show up for work on any given day. Like, like, it's just kind of a gamble. You just kind of flip the coin. Well, is someone so going to show up? And if they're going to show up, are they going to show up on time? We just don't know. One guy in particular, he was actually supposed to be our team leader. And there were times where we would show up and we had an agreed upon meeting place. Of course, as an electrician, that's always at different places throughout the city. So, like, all right, we're going to meet at this location at this time. And we would show up and boss man's not there. Our team leader's not there. He's got the truck. He's got the supplies. He's got the wire. He's got all the things. And we don't have any of it. And we're just sitting there waiting is this guy going to show up? He was very unreliable, undependable. He could not be trusted. He could not be depended on. And eventually he was let go because of this failing in his life. Well, this is decidedly not how our Lord is. He is not like that. He, he is, he's more like the guy that you can depend on. He shows up day in and day out. He's always there. He's always on time. He gets the job done. He's dependable. He's trustworthy. There's never a time where you have to doubt whether or not God will do as God has said He will do. He's trustworthy. Next, the Lord says that He forgives iniquity or transgression and sin. That word for forgive literally means to carry it, something away, to lift it or to carry it away. I don't know how many of you have, have felt at times when you're carrying around unconfessed sin, unrepented sin, and it just feels heavy upon you. You just, you just feel the weight of it upon you. And then when you come to that moment of where you just confess that before the Lord, where you confess that sin to whomever you may have sinned against and you bring it to Him and, and that, that guilt is just taken away, that, that weight, that burden is just lifted up upon you. That's forgiveness. That it's just carried away. We don't have to carry that any longer. The God who is there is, is willing to take sin out of the equation, to remove it from us. And we have this amazing triplet. He forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. Communicates the vastness of God's forgiveness. All of the things. As one writer put it, he forgives all manner of of sin. There, there are no degrees or types of sin that are beyond Yahweh's power or willingness to forgive. If you've ever struggled to forgive someone for maybe a sin that may have been committed against you, even if they've expressed their sorrow over that sin and asked for forgiveness, sometimes it is difficult in ourselves 
to extend that forgiveness. I know I've, I've been there. But can you imagine what, what it would be like if God was that way with you? But He's not. He is not that way. Truly, we would be in trouble. I think of Psalm, one, uh, Psalm 130, verses 3 and 4, that says, Oh, Lord, if, if you should mark iniquities, who could stand before you? No one could stand before the Lord. If God kept a record of every single thing we did wrong and was just bringing that up to heap that upon us day in and day out, we could not stand before Him. We would be on our faces, ground into the dirt. But the psalmist goes on to say, But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. The vastness of the forgiveness that's offered. He forgives transgression. He forgives iniquity. He forgives sins. He's willing to, to take it all away. He's a forgiving God. The vastness of the forgiveness offered should not be taken as a license to sin, of course. I'd be tempted as, as, you know, even as Paul was interacting, oh, maybe we should continue in sin that grace may abound. Not so fast. Though the Lord is more than willing to forgive those who humbly come before Him, those, those who come repentant before Him, those who persist in unrepentant sin should expect to receive the discipline of the Lord. The text goes on to say, he will by no means clear the guilty. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children, the children's children to the third and fourth generation. That word to visit, the Lord will visit. That's the concept of attending to. I'm, I'm going to attend to this. There's a problem here that needs to be addressed and I'm going to attend to it. And that concluding formula itself is a reference back to the Ten Commandments, Exodus 20. The Lord says, you shall not worship them, talking about idols, you shall not worship them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children, on the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing loving kindness to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. These two truths are held in tension. Yes, our God is a, a forgiving God. He is a merciful God. He is a compassionate God. He is willing and ready and able to forgive. But those who persist in rebellion should not assume immunity before the Lord. They should not assume a general amnesty for their crimes. Though the Lord is a forgiving God, He is also a God of justice and will act accordingly. And again, in the context of covenant renewal where this revelation comes, this is an important reminder and a warning to the people. God is merciful. He is gracious. He is abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And He will forgive. But those who receive the benefits of that forgiveness are those who come in humility and faith before Him. Those who persist in transgressing the covenant, those who remain in unbelief, those who insist upon ongoing rebellion should not expect to find such mercy. God is still a God of justice. He doesn't overlook sin. He forgives sin in the repentance, but He does not overlook it in His justice. This is our God. Now, I said at the outset of today's text that this is arguably the, the single most important text in the Old Testament. I have specific reasons why I believe that is the case. Primarily, this is the single most referenced text from the Old Testament within the Old Testament itself. So this is very early on in, this is the second book of the Bible, right? Genesis, Exodus. Very early on in, in Revelation history. 
and this text is going to be referenced and quoted and, and alluded to dozens of times throughout the rest of the Old Testament as, as individuals, later writers, are going to hearken back to this text as they interact with the things that were written. Now, we don't have time to go through all of those texts. Uh, believe me when I say that I was tempted to go through more of these than I'm going to go through, uh, but I'm going to summarize some of the things and, and how these later writers use this text, and then we're going to see why this is significant on this Christmas Eve. First, let's remember the context of the text. This is in the context of covenant renewal, a desire for the personal presence of Yahweh as they enter the land and, and renew the covenant, say, okay, Lord, we sinned, and now we're coming to you again. We will fade faithful to your covenants. Moses is going to refer back to this text as he calls the people to be faithful to the Lord as they enter the promised land in Deuteronomy chapter 4. Whereas Deuteronomy it is the second giving of the laws they are about to enter the land. He's reminding them of all the things that the Lord had taught them. And this is going to be central to the reminders. Later on, Hezekiah uses this text when he calls the people to repentance. If you remember your, uh, the, the history of the people of Israel, they often were falling into sin. They often had wicked kings who would lead the people into idolatry. And Hezekiah was one of the good kings. He was one of the ones that tried to call the people back to say, we have, we have sinned against the Lord by pursuing these idols, these false gods, these things that aren't really gods. We need to come back to the Lord. And he uses this text to call the people back and say, if we repent, God will forgive because look at his character. Look at what he's like. So he calls the people to repentance. Multiple psalms contain references to, to Exodus 34 as, as the psalmist is going to ask for forgiveness for the Lord and, and appeal to this text to show that, Lord, you promised you'll forgive. Do so now. There are psalms of praise that worship the Lord, quoting this text, saying, Lord, thank you for your forgiveness. Thank you for your covenant faithfulness. Thank you that I know that you will not forsake me. Ezra and Nehemiah both use Exodus 34 as they call the people to live faithfully to the Lord. Nehemiah prays that the Lord would honor the promises contained in this revelation of God as, as the people come in repentance. And the prophets, some of the minor prophets, they urge their audience to repentance because and they appeal to Exodus 34, the character of God, as they cry out, repent. And be confident that God will forgive, that God will restore, that God will hear you because this is who He is. This is what He's like. And this is what He has promised for those who come. And even the pagan Ninevites received the mercy of God in the book of Jonah which Jonah recognized was, the, was consistent with the character of God. Lord, I knew you would be compassionate. I knew you'd be gracious. And he quotes that same formula found in, in Exodus 34. That's graciousness, even to pagan Ninevites. This is your God. This is the one we gather week in and week out to worship and to come before and to celebrate. We should worship Him and we should rest in who He is. Now you might be thinking to yourself, okay, that's all well and good, but this is Christmas Eve. What does this have to do with Christmas? What does this have to do with Jesus? Isn't this supposed to be a Christmas sermon? Forgive me if I go just a little bit long today, but I'm not done yet. As they say, but wait, there's more. Flip over with me to John chapter 1. John chapter 1. And we have, this is the, Exodus 34 is the most quoted text of the Old Testament within the Old Testament itself. So it makes me ask might make you ask the question, okay, well, what about the New Testament? Where does this show up in the New Testament? And the answer might surprise you. As often as this text is quoted in the Old Testament, it is not quoted directly a single time in the New Testament. Not once. 
Well, why? Why is that the case? How could it be that a text that was so foundational and so important to all of the, the Old Testament writers and authors, why is it so absent in the New Testament? Well, it is not entirely absent, and, and I, want to, I just want to take a little slight detour just to explain something about the, the concept of illusions. And I'm not talking, not illusion, but illusion. The New Testament often refers back to the Old Testament without quoting it directly word for word, but does so in a way that is dependent upon some of the language, uh, some of the themes, some of the concepts, so that you can identify that there is a connection between the texts, even if there is not a direct quotation. They are are alluding to this text or that text rather than quoting it directly. Well, how do we identify these allusions? How do we know when a New Testament author is alluding to an earlier text? Well, first, we have to start with the assumption that the New Testament writers, they knew their Old Testament, right? They knew their Bibles. They knew what the authors, what the prophets had written, and they were incredibly biblically literate individuals. And that's evident with how how often they do directly quote the Old Testament. They they do it all the time, right? We see this all throughout the New Testament, such and such was spoken by the prophet saying, and there's a direct quotation from the Old Testament. It's everywhere. So we know that these authors knew their Bibles and they knew the Old Testament. So how do we know when they're alluding to the Old Testament without quoting it directly? Well, we look for things like linguistic parallels. We look for words or phrases that carry significant theological weight and are used in similar contexts that would indicate a linguistic link to that earlier text. And I'm sorry if this just sounds like a bunch of, uh, you know, mumbo-jumbo or whatever, but this is actually helpful and important for us as we think about how we study the Bible, as we make connections between the Old Testament and the New Testament, this is very significant. We are dealing with, in the New Testament, we're dealing with the Greek New Testament, and of course, the Hebrew is written in what language? Hebrew. You've got two different languages. Well, how do we, how do we find linguistic links when it's two different languages? Well, often the New Testament writers, they relied upon the Greek translation of the Old Testament known as the Septuagint. But there were other times where where New Testament writers seemed to be quoting directly from the Hebrew Old Testament and providing their own translation into Greek that may differ with the Septuagint, but is still very clearly a translation from the Hebrew for their context. So we look for these kinds of linguistic parallels and and look for the connections, terms and phrases that have significant theological weight in how the authors are using them. And finally, we look for thematic parallels. So even when a linguistic link might be a little bit tenuous, authors can use other words that do carry similar meanings and and they can be drawing uh, their inspiration from earlier Old Testament texts. So there are places, again, where, where the New Testament authors, they are, seem to be translating directly from the Hebrew instead of relying upon that Septuagint version of a particular text, but they are nevertheless quoting or alluding to an Old Testament text. All right, there's a little language lesson. I'm just set that aside now. As we think about Exodus 34 and we think about John chapter 1. I said all of that to say that there are no direct quotations of Exodus 34 found in the New Testament. There are, however, two texts that I believe carry some linguistic and thematic weight to them in terms of having parallels to Exodus 34 that warrant us identifying an illusion there. I'm going to argue in particular that John chapter 1 verses 14 and 17 is one of those texts. John chapter 1, the context of this, John's gospel begins rather uniquely when compared to other gospel accounts. Matthew and Luke begin with with the birth narratives, of course, genealogies and all of that. Mark jumps right into the preparatory work of John the Baptist, heralding in the work of of the Messiah. John begins with a theological treatise on the ontological nature of Jesus Christ. He is eternal in verses 1 and 2. He is the creator, verses 3 and verse 10. He is the source of light and life, verses 4 and 9. So after establishing Jesus, who John calls the Word, in the beginning was the Word, he establishes Him as the eternal creator, 
come to bring light and life, John then turns his attention to the incarnation and its significance in verses 14 through 18. So look with me. John writes in verse 14, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. That word for dwelt. He tabernacled. He took up residence among us, His people, on the earth, in Israel. The Word, this this God, this, this, this one incarnate, living with His people. Now again, think back to Exodus 34. God taking up residence with His people. The presence of God, that was part of the main lead up to Moses' request to see the glory of God in the first place. Well, you have to go with us, Lord. Don't, don't forsake us. You have to be with us. Because of the sin of the people, God threatened first to destroy them, and, and then when He said, okay, I won't do that, but I won't be with you, that, that devastating exchange, and of course, Moses says, okay, if you're going to do that, I, don't lead us up at all. We don't want to go without you. The presence of God is so, so significant. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Moses was desperate for that physical manifestation of the presence of God, and John says that Jesus Christ is the physical dwelling of Yahweh on earth. He came to dwell amongst us. But he doesn't stop there. He goes on to say that we beheld His glory. The glory of God in the person and the work of Jesus Christ was on display. Again, this takes us back to Exodus 34. This request, Lord, show me your glory. At that time, we had the the fullest manifestation of the glory of God to date. And yet, here in the person and the work of Jesus Christ, John identifies the Word incarnate manifesting the glory of God such that we have a, this is now the greatest manifestation of Yahweh on the earth. This is now the greatest self-revelation of God. Andreas Kostenberger wrote that John's purpose in adducing these Old Testament antecedent passages is to locate Jesus at the climactic end of the spectrum of God's self-disclosure to His people. Everything has been pointing to this moment. Everything rises with this. This is the grand crescendo of of the Lord's self-revelation to His people. It's Jesus Christ. John goes on to say that the word is full of grace and truth. And he says that in verse 14, and he says it again in verse 17. Grace and truth come through Him. And once again, we have connection to Exodus 34, which states that the Lord, the Lord God is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in loving kindness and truth. The Greek words from Paul's, from, from John's text, rather, they parallel so neatly with, with the words of Moses, or the words of the Lord to Moses in Exodus 34. He is full of grace and truth. He is abounding in loving kindness and truth. Another author wrote this, the use of glory and grace and truth in verse 14 therefore implies that God's original expression of covenant faithfulness to His people Israel has been transcended. The sending of the unique Son from the Father is the ultimate expression and source of God's covenantal faithfulness. The unique Word become flesh is God's glory and covenantal faithfulness revealed to His people. Moses sought to have a physical manifestations of the presence of God by asking to see the glory of God. God responded by, by providing him the richest self-revelation of God that had ever existed until Jesus Christ. Until Christ appeared on the earth. In Christ, the, the covenant faithfulness of God was on full display. His glory was revealed through His earthly ministry, and, and He embodied these divine attributes of grace and truth. This is none other than Yahweh in human flesh. 
That first song that we sang today was Angels from the Realms of Glory, and one of the verses was this. Though an infant, now we view him. He shall fill his father's throne. Gather all the nations to him. Every knee shall then bow down. So come and worship. Worship Christ, the newborn king. Jesus is Yahweh in human flesh. Everything that we learn about in Exodus 34, about who our God is, is culminates in Jesus Christ. It is displayed ultimately in the person and work of Jesus Christ. The mercy and the grace of God, His covenant faithfulness, His forgiveness of sins, and even the judgment upon the wicked of those who persist in rebellion, all of that, Jesus fulfills it all. Often Christmas is a time of year that is filled with nostalgia, and that's okay. The lights are beautiful. The songs are beautiful. There's one song in particular I was playing at home that I just, I just really particularly enjoy. They're, they're, they're nice. But it's always good to be reminded of why there's a celebration in the first place. Why we have joy. Last week we considered the importance of the humanity of Christ. He had to be human. Here we see His divinity. Yahweh. I am who I am in human The babe lying in a manger will grow to eventually die on the cross for the sins of the world. He promises forgiveness and life to all those who will come to Him by faith. And you can trust that promise because that's His character. That's who He is. He is Yahweh. He is the Lord. He is the Lord God. He is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. He keeps steadfast love for thousands. He forgives iniquity and transgression and sin. But He will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the Father and on the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Behold your God. Lord, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for the interconnectedness of of your scripture, Lord, as we see the themes and how this is traced out throughout the Old Testament and how this finds its ultimate fulfillment and culmination in Jesus Christ, how He is Yahweh. He is God. And all of the divine attributes are present in Him. In Him, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. Lord, may we come before You in heartfelt worship, delighting in who our Savior is, delighting in Jesus the Christ, the man, God, our Savior. We praise you, we thank you, and it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.